In today's conversation, you will learn that innovation is not the job of the few, but the responsibility of the many. I'm going to be speaking with Scott Anthony. He is the co-author of a new upcoming book called Eat, Sleep, Innovate, How to Make Creativity an Everyday Habit Inside Your Organization. It will be out uh, towards the end of October and published by Harvard Business Review Press. And what other better time than now uh, to encourage employees, um, entrepreneurs, business leaders, organizations to embrace uncertainty for uh, a catalyst of innovation. So Scott D. Anthony, who is my guest today, he's an author and a senior partner at growth strategy firm InnoSight. He is based in Singapore since 2010, and that's where he joins me uh, today. He is advising world-leading companies like Procter & Gamble, Kraft, Cisco Systems, and others like these on topics of growth and innovation. Scott has an extensive experience in emerging markets, particularly India, China, and the Philippines. And in 2019, he was recognized as the number nine most influential management thinker, by Thinkers 50. So I'm so excited for you to be listening to this great episode when we're going to be talking about innovation. Scott's going to give us the definition of innovation, which is very clear, very subtle, very uh, simple, and something that you can always remind yourself of. And we're also going to be speaking about what it takes for organizations to create the type of enabling environment that creates um, an organization in which employees really are empowered to innovate, to think about growth, think about new things. So enjoy the episode. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. So thank you very much uh, for joining the podcast, uh, Scott, from Singapore. I, th I think this is a first for me. Well, Agnes, I'm thrilled to be here. It's a, a bright, sunny afternoon here in Singapore, which is a nice change after a lot of rain in the last few days. I'm so happy that you're on the, the podcast and one of the reasons being the new upcoming book that you co-authored, which is called Eat, Sleep, Innovate, How to Make Creativity an Everyday Habit Inside Your Organization. It's going to be published by Harvard Business Review Press, and it will be out on the 20th of October, 2020. And I don't know if you have considered the numerology aspect of this date, the 2010-2020. Um, at least for me, it sounds like a great date to, to release a book. And before we go into some of the, you know, the, uh, the details of the book and some of your research and your experience on it, I just wanted to ask you because, you know, when I prepare for the podcast, I always, you know, watch a number of videos and talks and read articles with the guests. And I found that, if, if correct me if I'm wrong, that in your work you've been uh, dealing a lot with the big um, subjects of innovation and growth and and uh, investment and venture capital and now um, you're really focusing on somehow the micro level which is 
the behavior of individuals inside of organizations. Am I correct in, in detecting this shift? Um, and what, what made you zoom in basically on somehow the smallest uh, moving part of, of the innovation uh, system? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think you have accurately described the areas that we're focusing on in the book and some of the way in which our, our collective thinking at Insight has shifted over time. And just by way of background, Insight is a growth strategy consulting company that was founded back in 2000 by the late, great Harvard Business School professor Clayton Christensen. And I've been part of the organization since 2003. Those who don't know Clayton Christensen, he rose to fame when he wrote a book called The Innovator's Dilemma back in 1997 that described how large organizations would struggle with something that he called a disruptive innovation that would upend even the best run market leaders. And what our mission is at Innosite is to empower forward thinking organizations to navigate disruptive change and own the future. And we've just been trying to attack that problem from as many different perspectives as we can. So in the early days, it's all about understanding what disruptive change actually is and helping organizations understand it, help them spot it, help them determine the right strategies to respond. As we continue through the journey, we had periods of time where we were thinking about investing in or incubating new disruptive businesses so we could understand the dynamics more deeply. Then natural questions arose about what strategy do you need to follow if you really are to navigate disruptive change? How do you have to set up your organization? And you get all those pieces in place and you say, well, we actually have to do the day-to-day -day work to manage this. And of course, it's not just managing the disruptive changes. It's all the day-to-day -day things that have to happen in an organization that is going from one state to another state that's trying to deal with the world that just keeps throwing change after change at people. So yes, there's the capital I innovation where you're launching a bold new platform, you're doing something that's transformational. And there's the lowercase I innovation, the kind of everyday stuff that happens to enable organizations to do the best that they can do. So as we've just tried to look at this problem from as many perspectives as possible, we keep finding new areas to explore, new challenges, and of course, new opportunities. And it seemed like the right time with this book to really zoom in, as you say, to that, that micro level and say, what exactly do innovators do? And how do you create an environment or a culture that enables them to do this work as effectively as possible, as efficiently as possible, in a way where it truly is a habit versus something that you have to force or cajole people to do. And it's a rich, complicated area. All these areas are rich and complicated. There's no silver bullets. There's no simple answers. But our hope is, as we continue to probe and think about this problem as holistically as possible, we come up with helpful tools, techniques, and tips that allow people to, again, navigate through disruptive change and on the future. Thank you very much for this, um, and, and also confirming a little bit this this um, idea that I've had on, on looking at your 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 work in the past and now and now this book. Now, before we go and, and tackle maybe some of these behaviors and and um, beans and nudges that that you write about in the book, um, let me take a little bit of a step back because um, I don't know if other listeners feel this, but. Uh, innovation, the word, the term innovation, fills me with both excitement and dread at the same time. You know, I feel like, oh, you know, what is it? What What is innovation? It's energizing, but it's overused. And it's somehow getting difficult to, to know what it is that we, we mean by it. And, um, you know, I, I just think especially now, 
while we're recording this in the height of the pandemic. Uh, and, and as you said, um, 2020 has certainly thrown major curveballs at individuals, entrepreneurs, and corporations. So now it seems like a real critical time to be innovative and creative for survival and success. So I would be really interested to, to know what is your definition of innovation in 2020. Especially I've watched uh, some of your talks about the fourth era of innovation, which I found also very interesting. So if you wouldn't mind sharing that uh, with the listeners, Scott, that would be great. Great. So I'll, I'll make three points here. So I'll, I'll give the basic definition of innovation, which will keep it simple. Then I'll make it a little bit complicated by describing how any organization will have different types of innovation to recognize some of the complexities. And then I'll talk a little bit about this idea of the fourth era of innovation. And the good news is what definition of innovation we're using in 2020, it's the same definition we used in 2010, just about. So it is a reasonably fixed definition, which I think is good. So we try to keep the basic definition as simple as possible. So our definition is five words, something different that creates value. Now, it's simple, but it is a definition that was chosen carefully with some nuances around each of the words. Something is an intentionally vague word. A mistake people make is they assume innovation is all about new technologies, which means very few people do it. They're engineers, they work in labs, and so on. But innovation comes in lots of different forms and flavors. Yes, it can be new technologies, but it can be new marketing approaches, new ways to organize internally, new ways to communicate with employees, and on and on and on. And the broadness of the word something reminds us that innovation isn't the job of the few. It's the responsibility of the many. We have the word different to remind us that innovation isn't just about big breakthroughs or leap forwards. Sometimes people think it doesn't count unless it's a hypersonic plane or it's a world-saving vaccine or it's whatever Elon Musk is going to come up with next. Those are all forms of innovation, no doubt. But sometimes, again, it can be the everyday things, taking something complicated and making it that much simpler, taking something that's expensive and making it that much more affordable. Those are great ways to innovate as well. We have the word that, that's a transitional word, before you get to the two words of the definition that really are the most important ones, create value. This reminds us that innovation is different from its precursors, invention and creativity. Those are important, absolutely. But until you take that spark of invention and turn it into whatever you're trying to create value around, more revenues, more profits, more employee engagement, more customer satisfaction, whatever, in our eyes, you have not innovated. This reminds us that innovation isn't an academic activity. It is a hands-on active activity. I remind people of the importance of these two words by asking them to tell me who invented the light bulb, the international symbol that we have for innovation. People will instantly say Thomas Edison. And it's a bit of a trick question because the actual person who can, came, who can claim to create the light bulb, nobody knows for sure. The historical record is quite mixed. The reason why people say Edison is not because he was a great inventor. He was. He had more than 2,000 patents to his name. But they say him because he was an even better innovator. The world's first electrical generating facility was owned by the Edison Electric Company operating in lower Manhattan. That company merged with one of its rivals and created GE, a company that lives on today. Never forget Edison's most pertinent quote about innovation. Genius, he once said, is 1% inspiration 
and 99% perspiration. If you're not sweating, if you're not obsessing about solving the customer's problem, about creating value, in our eyes, you are not innovating. So that's the definition we use, something different that creates value. And you can see, again, some of the nuances in it. Now, I'm happy to keep going with the other two parts of my question, but I recognize that was a long response. So I want to see if you had any follow-up questions before I talk about the slight complexity we add on and more about this fourth era idea. Yes, I, I think you're right, and, and thank you for being, um, you know, mindful of, of the time because somehow when we start a podcast conversation, I have the feeling we enter some kind of time warp, and time, time seems to go much quicker. Um, but it was so great listening to you because I remember having this conversation once with um, a, a, a woman, a female colleague who was working in um, a company that was producing paper, and she was the head of uh, communication. And that company has um, innovated the way, you know, these A4 photocopy papers are packaged because the way usually they're packaged is you try to open this envelope like glued plastic on one end and then it all falls somehow apart. And they created a new way to open it like somehow like chewing gum, which was, you know, you pulled on a thread. And she said, I, I can't get my colleagues to you know shout about it and do press releases and she said it seems like a tiny thing but it can revolutionize how people open the papers how customers interact with the packaging so your explanation just really reminded me of of this it seems small and yet you know it was somebody's creativity and then it creates value to the customer so thank you very much for walking us through this um, maybe we can somehow segue into in now towards the book um, because I just love it that, that it really is about behavior and, and habit, innovation as a habit, which seems almost too good to be true, right? That, that it can be unleashed in the right environment. Um, so how, how, how does that work? Um, especially, I think, when, when we think back of um, you know, people who are maybe working in an organization that is somehow fear-based, where they are afraid that they're going to be losing their job, where their whole livelihood depends on it. We know, you know, um, you know, a lot of Americans are one paycheck away from losing their homes or, or not being able to afford childcare. So I wonder if we can look a little bit at, at this aspect of of how can employees feel appreciated and safe enough to to unleash this innovation as a behavior and a habit. Yeah, so let, let me say a couple things here. So first, as we talk about in the, the book about what it takes to successfully innovate, we synthesize the field work we've done and a bunch of other research and say that great innovators basically do five things. They're curious, they question the status quo, they're not happy with the way things are, they want to do something different. They're customer obsessed. You have to find a problem worth solving if you want to ultimately create value. So they try and figure out a problem worth solving. They're collaborative. They recognize that ultimately to solve that problem, they need to bring different forms of thinking together. They're adept in ambiguity. They know that every idea is going to be a little bit wrong in the beginning. So they're going to get to success through trial and error experimentation. And they're empowered. They actually go and do something because after all, you can't do something different that creates value unless you do something. So those are the behaviors that we describe. 
Now, the reason why we think every organization has the capabilities and capacity to successfully innovate is those behaviors are really innate in human beings as a species. I've got four kids. The oldest is 14. The youngest is four. I don't have to teach them to be curious, to be customer or, or externally obsessed, to go and try different things. It's just the way that kids are. So inside many organizations, it isn't about developing skills. It's about releasing constraints and empowering and enabling people to do more. Is that easy? No. It takes work inside any organization. Is every environment capable of doing it? Of course not. You need to have leaders who act in the right way. They have to have a fundamental trust in their people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the human capacity to follow those behaviors is there. So if organizations really want to bring the innovation energy out in their organization, it's not a terribly hard thing to do. It really starts with the recognition from a leader that my people, my team, the people who work here, they have the capabilities to do it if I create an environment that encourages and amplifies that latent innovation energy. And a lot of it, a lot of it comes down to the fundamental mindset of the leader, a leader who says the people here are good. They've got capacity. They've got capabilities. And if we can sharpen, hone, amplify those, our organization can do great things together. Again, this isn't every organization. There are plenty that are ruled by fear. There are plenty where there are very severe repercussions if you try to do anything different and it doesn't work. But it doesn't have to be that way. And we've seen organizations that started in one state that got to another. As an example, in the book, we have a deep case study of DBS Bank in Singapore. And, you know, Singapore has a well-earned reputation for being a very process-obsessed place, very rule-abiding. And DBS went from a bank that lagged in its local market to being globally recognized as a highly innovative, highly digital bank where innovation really is at its core. And in my view, if a regulated bank in Singapore can do it, any organization can do it. Absolutely. And um, when we work with organizations, um, you know, helping them with um, flexible working, with work-life balance, with um, preventing and tackling sexual harassment, improving employee engagement, a lot of it is about um, creating more psychological safety, more trust so that people can open up, they can communicate. But the 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 challenge we always butt up against, and that's what we hear also from from then employees. Yes, but my manager is micromanaging. My leader is is too controlling, or he's not tolerating this. Um, how if if somebody doesn't see the need to change or lacks this awareness of their environment or self awareness to of the need to change as a leader? Because you you mentioned these you know, the, the, the leadership qualities, how do you, what is the, the next logical step then to, to build a business case or to get, you know, how, how do you go around that, um, this, this kind of cog in, in this change process? Yeah, a great question. And, and of course, it's a complex challenge, but I'll, I'll suggest at least one of the answers that we lay out in the book. And this gets to the broad problem that, that inhibits any kind of change effort in organizations. You know, we focus in on innovation, but you can make this more broadly applicable. You know, innovation is something different that creates value. Organizations exist to do what they're currently doing, not to do something different, to do what they're currently doing a little bit better, a little bit faster, a little bit more efficiently. So one of the hidden barriers to innovation inside organization 
are the existing habits, routines, and rituals. Again, all of which mutually reinforce to do what the organization is currently doing, not to do something different. We call this in the book institutionalized inertia, where you just have people who just keep doing the same thing. So the answer we suggest, if you're trying to break inertia, if you're trying to encourage new habits, rips a page right out of the behavioral change literature and says you need to combine together a behavior enabler with an artifact and nudge. A behavior enabler is essentially a step-by-step guide that makes it simpler for people to do new, new things. It might be a checklist. It might be a coach that helps them. It might be an app that guides them, whatever. The artifacts and nudges are the indirect support that encourage people to do new things without them even realizing it. One of the examples from DBS, I think, is a really powerful one that could be used by analogy to accelerate any change effort. This is something that DBS did a few years ago. The problem it identified is it wanted to collaborate. It wanted to be more agile, but its meetings were standing in the way of doing that. Meetings weren't collaborative. Meetings would start late. They'd end later. One voice would dominate on and on, something that you see inside many organizations. So they introduced a program called Mojo. The Mo is the meeting owner. The Mo is responsible for the meeting starting and ending on time for clear decisions being made and everybody participating, equal share of voice. The Joe, the joyful observer, is appointed by the Mo at the beginning of the meeting. The Joe watches. If the Joe sees that people are digitally distracted, that he or she tells them to put their phones down and focus on the meeting. The Joe gives public feedback to the Mo at the end of the meeting. After the meeting ends, everyone goes on their app and goes and rates the Mo for how well he or she did during the meeting. The Mo gets a monthly report detailing how well they did their job. This is a great bean, the behavior enabler, the formal appointment of the two roles, the app, the checklist that exists to help everybody understand what they need to do. The artifacts and nudges, things like the gamification, the leaderboards people get, even the Joe sitting in the room is, or on the Zoom, depending on, on where people are, is a reminder, very quiet reminder of the behaviors people are seeking to follow. So if you take some of the challenges you identified where you say the real issue we have here are middle managers that are stuck in a rut, that are doing the same thing, that are not encouraging new forms of behavior, I think a bean is a generally applicable tool that, of course, can encourage innovative behaviors, but also can be used to accelerate any internal change effort. Excellent. I think this is so, so interesting. Um, now, when you were doing your research for the book, uh, besides DBS Bank or even that, um, what were some of your favorite real-life examples of corporations or organizations that, you know, a case study that could now listen to, to uh, that could illustrate to the listeners um, really the power of, of these tools and also the what changes to the habits and employee behaviors can um, achieve in an organization um, and something that would really create uh, a great interest for your book. Yeah, so in the book, we have 101 examples of these beans, the behavior enabler, artifacts and nudges, and they come from all different forms of organizations. And of course, you get some from people like Google and Amazon and Airbnb and people like that. But the, the thing that I, I've always been obsessed with, and this is something that we feature in the introduction to the book, is the idea of what we call in the book a no debt, a normal organization doing extraordinary things. 
A DBS is an example of that. It looks like a pretty normal organization, but it's doing amazingly cool things. We've got case studies in the book from UNICEF, which again is a pretty normal organization, but has really embraced innovation and is driving big change in local areas, helping children around the world. And then one of my, my favorite case studies, Settlement Music School. This is in the Philadelphia area in the United States, not-for-profit. It has six physical branches where it runs music classes. And it really, through its CEO, Helen Eden, has really embraced the idea of innovation and driven a bold transformation in a more than 100-year-old, reasonably small not-for-profit Again, showing that you can do this stuff anywhere. And, and again, I think it takes the right leader. I think the leader has to do the right things and all that. But I, I think if you see it from big organizations like the Microsofts and Procter and Gambles and DBSs of the world, then you see it in the not-for-profit area in places like UNICEF. And we've got the Salvation Army in the book as well. And then at the smaller level, like the Settlement Music School, it really shows you that innovation can and does happen in every sized organization. And back to one of your questions before about this idea of the fourth era, one of our beliefs is right now is ironically, maybe even paradoxically, a great time to be in a large established organization. Because in the first era of innovation, in the beginning days, innovation was done by individuals. Uh, you could name the people who came up with innovations. In the second era of innovation, innovation was done by the large corporations since there's no established venture capital world. In the third era, when the large organizations got too slow and too bloated, it was the startups that really were the innovation heroes. The fourth era, the one we're in now, you're seeing an interesting combination where large organizations are combining assets of scale with the same tools that entrepreneurs are using to innovate at a blistering pace. And when you combine that together, the energy of an entrepreneur with the assets of scale you do something that no startup organization can do. The things that UNICEF does are things that no other organization can do. The things that DBS does are the things that no startup could do. And that really is the opportunity that sits in front of everybody today, especially in the midst of a pandemic. When, yes, of course, there are tremendous challenges all around the globe. But as one of my friends said to me, it's kind of like a deck of cards has been thrown up in the air. And we have an opportunity now to innovate not to the new normal, but to innovate to the new better. Absolutely. Have you um, come across um, some organizations, large or small, that have already responded um, to uh, the pandemic in a way that you felt was very impressive, something that you may uh, want to share? Well, it's a, it's a great timely question, and I do have three examples that I love, but I've not gotten approval from any of those organizations to go on record with the specific stories of what they've done. But I'll, I'll tell you the categories of each of the stories, is I think those categories are generally applicable. Then I'll tell one little story about our own organization. So, you know, the the, the first example is one of what I think will prove to be many examples of heroic day-to-day -day innovation in March and April of 2020. So this is a friend of mine who works in Singapore who's in the agricultural industry. And I remember talking to him in early April and he said something along the lines of we're screwed because you know they had to get raw material from places that are chaotic in the best of times that now had been locked down. And you think about the, the complexity of making that happen, of going through different geographies, each of which have different policies and practices, when no one really knows what's going on. And innovation saved the day. People found different ways to go and solve the problem and create value. 
And there are millions of miracles like this that happened in March and April that kept the world turning. That's one example. The second example is a different food company that operates in Asia Pacific that's pursuing what, what I call a second order silver lining opportunity. So first order silver lining opportunity, any kind of crisis hits, there are obvious opportunities. So March and April, we needed more protective personal equipment. We needed masks. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's obvious that needs to get done. Companies that did that did well. The second order are kind of the knock-on effects. So as an example, consumers, you could argue, are going to be more concerned about wellness. They're going to be more concerned about protection. They're going to be more concerned about immunity. And if you can figure out ways to meet consumers where they're going to be, that's a great innovation opportunity. And there's a, a great story that I'm working on that describes an organization doing that. And then the final example is a professional services company that has said, look, we need to build adaptive capacity inside our organization. We have to improve our ability to respond to change at scale. So we're going to use all the digital practices that we've been forced to adopt at a very quick pace to layer on some new things that will enable us to be a much faster, much more flexible organization where we can maintain a lot of the things we loved about the past, the community, the connection, the culture we had, but then dramatically change our work practices so we can be faster, more flexible and adaptive because it's very clear to us that that's what the future demands. And this moment, this moment of dislocation creates an opportunity for all of us to do that. And in our own organization, we had one great micro example of this. You know, we have a, a thing we do when we gather groups together where we go and have them do physical activities to see where people stand on an issue. We call it walk the line. So, you know, you, you ask people, how do you feel about the future? Go stand over here if you're optimistic, stand over here if you're pessimistic. And they go lay themselves out and you have discussion. It's a great way to drive engagement. But you can't do that if you're not in a room. So I was talking to my colleague Asher in early March in the office in Singapore, and, and we were saying, you know, it looks like this could get kind of bad. What do we do? And I said, Asher, is there any way that, that you might be able to create some kind of digital tool that allows us to do this? And, and like a great innovator, Asher was curious. He said, well, uh, why don't I go look at it? How might I do this? He was customer obsessed. He talked to consultants about what exactly would be required for something like this. He's collaborative. He found a, a developer in Malaysia. He's adept in ambiguity. He spent about 300 bucks to come up with the first pilot of the tool, and he's empowered. He, he just went and got stuff done. And a couple weeks later, we had a digital tool that I wouldn't say saved us when we had to quickly move online, but it helped us an awful lot. So it's just you know one of the, 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 the tons of examples out there of someone inside an organization just going and making something happen, doing something different that creates value. And I think um, it also gives people purpose, right? When we're in a situation when it's so easy to just run around like headless chicken and, and lose purpose of, okay, what are we doing if we do not have the suppliers or if we do not have the, the customers or if we cannot even access our premises? Um, even giving employees focus on... on at least solving one part of the problem gets them energized and and it fills them with with uh, purpose and and um, as you say creates this creative energy and innovative energy that that can get the, get the ball rolling. So thank you very much for sharing these these great examples. 
and very timely as well. Now, um, before we move to the final question, um, would you mind sharing, Scott, with listeners where they can find out more about you, where they can read some of your more, some of your other books, your other articles, um, where they will find uh, the book, which you know, I guess everybody can look on Amazon, but if there's a special place for it as well. Yeah, so we, we've created a companion website for the book, eatsleepinnovate.com, and that has more information about how to get the book. It's got some tools that can help to use the ideas in the book. There are some examples of the beans that we've talked about during this discussion. Uh, we, we, we do try to empower forward-thinking organizations to navigate disruptive change, so we, we do try to make sure we get as many tools and techniques out in the market as possible. So eatsleepinnovate.com and my organization is Innosite, so www.innosite.com also has a whole bunch of other stuff. And then, of course, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, and all that good stuff. Great. Um, now, as the final question, we always ask the, more or less the same question here on the Work Life Hub podcast. Um, if I could ask you, Scott, to give one advice to a CEO or a business owner who has just seen their businesses you know, crumble um, or the market crumble because of the pandemic or the government lockdown measures or the restrictions. Um, based on your research and your your experience, what is the one thing you would tell them to do now or focus on now? Well, I mean, I, I, I am amazingly biased about this question, but it would be to embrace innovation like you never have before. As innovation properly focused, properly addressed or properly aimed at some of the challenges of today, not only can help you manage today's situation, it can help you innovate to the new better. And that's a, to the, the slight nuance point of, of our definition, the broad definition, something different that creates value. Every organization should have at least two different types of innovation, one that is more focused on today, one that's more focused on tomorrow. And a leader who looks at today's time not a, as a crisis, but as an opportunity to go and figure out how they're going to make today's operations stronger and go and create tomorrow's operations through innovation. Yes, it's hard, no doubt. But there are also, history speaks very clearly, also are ample opportunities for those organizations who think and act in the right way. And I think it all starts with the leader believing that. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Scott. I so appreciate you taking the time and sharing your insight and uh, wisdom with, with the listeners. Um, and I just want to wish you really the best of success with your work and also with, with the book uh, later in October. Thank you very much, Agnes. I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope that listeners enjoyed as well. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. I, for one, really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you did as well. And if you're interested in other conversations like these with thinkers and leaders and innovators who are driving employee engagement, want to make sure that people have a great purpose in their work and organizations change for the better, then I encourage you to look for more episodes either on your podcasting app or go to worklifehub.com forward slash podcasts where you will find all the other episodes we've recorded so far and do not hesitate to subscribe to our newsletter because we regularly send out the latest episodes as well as other articles of interest about the future of work about gender equality about work-life balance and all these related organizational questions 